Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to another show here from the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I started the Alliance and uh, really to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across our nation. Our mission here is to educate the public and connect people together who are dedicated in changing minds, laws, policies, and practices. So restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated from schools across the nation and really beyond. We've got a tremendous uh, audience, including people from across the world, uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, lots of lots of places. And we're really pleased to have everyone that's part of this community. Our vision ultimately is really to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. And we know there are better ways. And if we can do better, we, we really must. So really excited today. Very excited about our guests today. Uh, we have Leslie Margolis joining us today for a very special interview. I do want to let you know that we will be taking questions today during the interview. So if you have questions, uh, please bring them. Leslie is a managing attorney, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's a really great opportunity to ask questions that you might have. Uh, also, today's event is being recorded and will be made available for you to view or listen to later. We make those available both on Facebook, YouTube, and also as an audio podcast. So before we get started with our guest, I want to introduce to you our uh, co-host today, and that is Pamela. Uh, and Pamela believes that uh, compassion, care, and empathy um, for the most marginalized and vilified or off and often forgotten among us uh, recently, this propelled her to run for a school board uh, seat in an effort to advance educational policy for special education and other minority children. Pamela is the founder and manager of the State of Education podcast, a great podcast, and she recently started the Moms of Black and Brown Children Facebook group. Uh, Pamela was a content manager, uh, content producer rather here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I'm really proud to have Pamela both as a friend and a colleague here. Uh, welcome, Pamela. Very excited to have you here with us. Thank you, Guy. Really excited. Yeah, we've really got a great show today. And uh, if you would, I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Leslie on screen. If you would do the honor of introducing Leslie to our audience, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. Welcome, Leslie. So Leslie Seed Margolis is a managing attorney at Disability Rights Maryland, Maryland's protection and advocacy agency, where she has worked since 1985. In her practice at DRM, she handles individual special education cases and engages in special education policy work at the local, state, and national levels. And she has extensive experience with systemic urban school reform litigation, having co-counseled the 28-year Baltimore City Vaughn G. case for many years. Ms. Margolis is a frequent presenter at local, state, and national trainings and conferences, and has published technical assistance documents, manuals, and articles. She has been a member of several national boards, including Tosh, the Epilepsy Foundation, and COPA, and currently sits on several Maryland-based boards. In 2014, Ms. Margolis was the co-recipient of COPA's Diane Limpton Award for Outstanding Advocacy. She received the Outstanding Advocate of the Year Award from the Art of Maryland in 2017. Fantastic. Well, Leslie, welcome. We are really excited to have you today. And I've just got to say that, you know, I had the have had the honor and privilege now of knowing you for, I guess, going on two years. And, uh, you know, I had the um, 
really this amazing opportunity to, to work with you as I was working through um, the situation with my son and, and our issue with restraint seclusion and had the opportunity to learn so much from you. And, and really, you know, um, you have been inspirational, uh, you know, not only to me, but I, I know so many others across the state. And, and, and frankly, all that you uh, did to support the work that, you know, I was trying to do in my local community really probably had a lot to do with where we're sitting today uh, in the Alliance. Um, so thank you so much. It's a really great honor to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much, Guy. It's such a pleasure to be here. And um, Pam, I've, I just met you the other day, but such a pleasure to be here with you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. We're really excited. So I want to remind folks that are in the audience that we will be taking interviews, uh, excuse me, we will be taking questions again during the interview. So if you have any questions, uh, you feel free to put those in the chat box and we'll look for those throughout the interview. Uh, we, of course, have probably more than enough questions to keep us busy. Uh, so we'll go ahead and dive right in with some some questions. So I'll start off with the first question and then uh, Pam, send it over to you. So uh, Leslie, you know, so you're an attorney with Disability Rights Maryland, um, which is Maryland's uh, designated protection advocacy agency. Can you talk a little bit about what a protection and advocacy agency is and how our viewers that are across the country might learn about their own local agencies and what they might be able to do um, for them or with them? Um, certainly. So the Protection and Advocacy Network uh, was created by federal law in the mid-1970s um, in response to really horrific conditions in institutions for people with developmental disabilities, and then um, has expanded over the years. So there is a protection and advocacy organization in every state and every territory. And as you said, Disability Rights Maryland is the, the PNA, as we call them, for Maryland. So we have a mission, which is to protect and advocate for the rights of people with disabilities. Um, at DRM, we represent adults, we represent children, we're a statewide organization. Um, we provide free legal services to people who have legal issues um, that uh, stem from their disabilities. So in Maryland um, at, at DRM, we do a variety of kinds of work. We do special education, we do transportation, we, we do mental health, um, we, we, um, our, our work is, is listed on our website. But one of the core pieces of what the PNAs do is um, ensure that people are, are protected from abuse and neglect. So we have this unique authority that makes us look very different from a standard legal services organization. When we believe that, there are, that people have been abused or neglected or are at risk of abuse or neglect, we have this access authority. We can go into an institution, into a school, into a group home, and we have access to the residents, we have access to records, we have access to staff, and we can investigate, and we can seek redress of, of the violations that may have taken place. Um, so that's, that's authority that is very unique to us. Um, people can um, find out where they're PNA is by going to um, our national umbrella organization, um, the National Disability Rights Network. And the website for that is www.n is in national drn.org. Um, and um, there's a, um, a map and you can click on it or um, type in your state and uh, in your state's protection and advocacy agency information will pop up. That's fantastic. Uh, Pamela, you want to take the next question? Yes. 
So I know you've been involved with the issue of restraint and seclusion for many years, but how did you first become involved in this issue? That's a great question. Um, back in, I think it was 2002, we began to see some cases coming into our office um, involving um, more cases than usual involving restraint and seclusion. And I remember particularly that we had uh, we had a child who had been duct, tape, duct taped mm. to his chair by his teacher. And we had a, a child who, um, who had developmental disabilities who had been locked in a room um, and left at the end of the school day. Um, and the bus driver was wondering where she was and went into the school and, and then found her in this room with, with the lights out. She had been, she had been left. And, um, and then we realized, you know, I realized as I began to, to look at things that we did not have any policies or, or procedures in Maryland to govern the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. There are procedures governing restraint in, in prisons and institutions um, in our Developmental Disabilities Administration, but we had nothing in schools. So uh, we decided it was time <laughs> to do something. And there weren't a lot of other states that had regulations or, or laws at the time. There were maybe two other states, but, uh, but we took the best of, of what we found from those state, uh, state laws. And we, we went into our legislature in 2003 with a bill that we were able to, to pass in not the form I wrote it because that's not what generally happens in the legislative process, but we, we got a bill passed that then required the creation of regulations. And um, the way we wrote the bill, we were part of the group that wrote the regulations. So, um, so we had a lot of influence in what those regulations looked like. And they stood us in uh, reasonably good stead until we, we redid them a couple of years ago. But that was the initial. Um, that was the initial way that we 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 got in. We had some cases that came to us, and that's often how we do our. I mean, really, it's how we do our policy work. It comes out of the individual cases that we that we handle. Great, great. So you know, starting from that as a beginning, um, you know, I know there have been several uh, several rounds of legislation that has moved through since then. Can you tell us a little bit more about that legislative process and and how? Uh, the legislation evolved, um, you know, here in Maryland? Sure. So initially, uh, we were we were focused on getting something passed. Uh, we had, at the time, a director of special education who was anxious to write regulations, but we had a, a State Department of Education at the time that would not write regulations or issue policies unless there was a statute to anchor them to. Um, and, and I'm sure that's not an unusual situation. And we had a legislature that, as lots of legislatures do, um, you know, was was not willing to pass what we wrote. And so there's there's a lot of um, horse trading that, that happens in the legislative process. So a lot of the provisions of what we had written disappeared, and um, ultimately what we ended up with were some definitions and, um, and the requirement that a work group develop the regulations. And we held on to a provision that never got implemented the way we had hoped, but nevertheless was there, that higher ed institutions had to be surveyed to, um, to look at whether they had sufficient training in positive behavior supports so that um, teachers in training could come into schools 
and knowing something about how to meet the behavior needs of students. Um, and that's something that we feel very, very strongly about and we have held on to over the years. Um, and we also had provisions in the bill about the need for, for alternatives. We never want to say to people, you, you can't do something without also giving them options for what they can do. So we've always built professional development and training and positive behavior supports and um, interventions into, into legislation. So we did, uh, so we did get that bill passed. We did have a work group which really wrestled with everything from how to define restraint and seclusion to how long there could be restraint and seclusion to whether it could be on an IEP to, you know, every aspect of this. This was brand new to us. And, um, and then we came in uh, some time later um, and uh, we tried to ban the use of face down prone restraint, which ultimately we did through regulations. Um, we um, also came in and, and uh, tinkered with the regulations because we knew that uh, there were districts that were using um, chairs that are typically used for kids with physical disabilities, that they were being used as restraints for kids, primarily kids with autism. Um, so we made, we, we strengthened the definition of mechanical restraint to make clear that kids could not be placed in equipment um, unless it was medically recommended and it was used for the purpose for which it was intended. So those kinds of changes happened over the years. And then, of course, um, other states began to pass laws and much more information began to come out about the dangers of restraint and seclusion. So, you know, it was going on in 2002. It was very different from the landscape in 2012, 2015, 2000. 17. So um, in 2017, we, we really, we wanted to, to come back and really revisit the, the issues and came back with a, a much stronger bill. One of the things that we have had learned over the years is that if restraint and seclusion are allowed to be on an IEP, an individualized education program, it becomes a default way of intervening mm -hmm. with behavior. And um, you know, we had not been able to prevent restraint and seclusion from being on IEPs initially. But we realized this time around that this was something we felt very, very strongly about. Um, so it, it, at the same time that we pushed that in the legislation, we also had, um, through the coalition that I chair, another bill that would give parents the ability to refuse to consent to the use of restraint and seclusion on their IEPs. And it turned out to be a very good strategy because that provision did not go through on the restraint seclusion bill, but the parent consent bill did. So, um, so, so the legislative process, to answer your question in a very long way, is one where there's just constant negotiation and constant shifting and... Um, and when one route doesn't work, you find another route, and um, and very rarely do you come out with exactly what you wanted at the time you wanted it. That you come back, you know, sometimes over a period of years, and you just you just um, 
chip away at, at the issue and, um, and and try to make what you want happen. And sometimes it, it takes several tries. Sometimes you do several bills in, in different ways. Um, you reframe issues. Um, and it's also a process of educating legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people hear seclusion, um, it, they don't necessarily know what that looks like. We came into the legislative hearing with a video and showed them what it looks like. Right. We showed them a child being dragged down the hallway and shoved in a room with the room with the door closed. Um, we show them what it looks like. And and it's hard to forget that once you've seen it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a very, a very relatable experience from term, you know, in terms of as a father, um, when restraint and seclusion first were words that uh, were used in, in uh, reference to school, uh, I just could not imagine these things happen inside of school. I could not imagine that kids were physically restrained and, and secluded. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think people really have to understand what it is to understand the problem. And, you know, of course, we live in a day and age where, uh, you know, there, there's there are examples of this coming out in, in all areas of the world. We look at what happened to George Floyd and we look at what happened to Cornelius Frederick. And, you know, I think people are becoming more aware of the dangers of things like restraint. Um, so, you know, m- maybe the time will be better to continue to, to push. But, yeah, I mean, I hear you on the, the gradual process, um, you know, and certainly, you know, certainly we have some of the better laws here. But um, I see I see the process that you, you've gone through to do this. Pamela, you want to take the next question? Yeah, and I want to say I, I I just think it's it's very interesting that you you guys show the video because it's true. How else would they know what it sort of looks like? I mean, as a parent, just as you stated, guy, it's shocking. You have no idea what that is. A lot of people still don't know what that is. They are like, oh, it's just a timeout. What's the big deal? Timeout. It's it's a lot more than a timeout, right? And so Maryland has some of the stronger laws in the nation. So when, when as regarding restraint and seclusion, and this includes the criteria that makes it clear that restraint and seclusion are only to be used in an emergency situation where there are necessary, uh, where it's necessary to protect a student or other person from eminent serious physical harm. After other less intrusive non-physical interventions have failed or been determined to be inappropriate, uh, you ag- sort of exactly tell us what that means, and then what what is an emergency s- situation, and what is meant by imminent serious physical harm. Sure. So um, our regulations do not define imminent serious physical harm, but the guidance, we have very strong guidance that our State Department of Education has put out. And that guidance makes clear that imminent serious physical harm is the definition from federal law, U.S. law, um, about dangerousness. So there are four, four criteria. Um, imminent serious physical harm is... Um, a substantial risk of death, or um, um, it, it, intense physical pain, or um, protracted um, and obvious disfigurement, or um, protracted loss of impairment um, or impairment of um, a function of a of a body part. So um, it's a really high standard to me. And of course, what we see is that the vast majority of incidents of restraint and seclusion do not meet that standard. So it's an ongoing issue for us when, um, when we receive reports, when families call us, um, 
And, you know, we're, we're hearing about kids who have been restrained for mouthing off at a teacher or throwing paper or knocking stuff off their desk. You know, those do not meet the standard. And that's an ongoing issue of, um, for advocacy for us and for, for families. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a great point and kind of segues into the, the next question, which is, um, you know, we hear that as well. You know, I, I have a lot of phone calls from people from across the, the country on, on a regular basis and hear a lot of stories about, uh, you know, other children that have been subjected to restraint and seclusion. Uh, of course, we've seen reports and things like the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica and NPR, uh, and, and a lot of those echo the same that, you know, although in Maryland, we do have that imminent serious physical harm standard, that's not that's not true everywhere. Uh, some places have a, a lesser standard. So Maryland did follow the federal guidance in terms of keeping that, that strong definition. But even with that in place, you know, we find that, that often restraint seclusion is happening for, you know, um, noncompliance, for disrespect, for offensive language, minor behaviors. I mean, I, I've heard real world examples of, you know, uh, my son once was restrained for splashing water. Uh, another that was restrained and secluded for flipping a light switch off and on. Uh, refusing to clean up their desk. Why do you think thinking that? too loudly? Yeah, yeah, all, all, yeah. all sorts of yeah. things. Yeah. Why do you think this is happening? I mean, again, we look at that definition, and and I, I usually use a shorter version, which looking at imminent serious physical harm, because I think of it as this is a life or death type of injury. This is not a scratch, a bruise, right. scrape. It's something right. really, really serious. And if you're holding that high of a threshold, you would think that the use of these things would be exceedingly rare, and it's not. So, so why do you think that happens? Why do you think it's used, uh, really? I mean, to, to put it bluntly, somewhat in violation of of what the law says. I think there are. Um, I think there are probably several reasons for that, um, but I think that that part of it is that staff don't have the support and the training that they that they need and it's not just um, it's not just behavior um, support and training and um, because we know that that behavior is a form of communication and um, and so part of what we want to see when we see the the professional development is also ensuring that students are getting, their appropriate education services um, that 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 academic services, the academic instruction is is also really key. Um, you know, we have kids whose behavior is linked to the fact that they're, you know, they may be being called on to read out loud, and and they have a reading disability that hasn't been identified, or they're not getting appropriate interventions. Right, so it's 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 all tied together, and if you only address the behavior. And you're not looking at underlying reasons for why that behavior is happening. It's not gonna. It's not gonna solve this. So I think that part of it, you know when when restraint and seclusion are used, I think they're used because people don't know what else to do. They're right. feeling desperate, and um, and they and they go to this because they're there's just a sense of desperation. I think there is often. Um, a lack of sufficient support services. I can't tell you how many IEPs I look at where I have a client who may be getting 15 minutes a month of psychological services. I don't know what you do in 15 minutes a month other than say hello to your psychologist or the counselor. Um, you know, the, the kind of, of support 
support and the and the the meaningful services are not always always there. And there aren't necessarily provisions for students if there's a, a part-time staff person and it happens to be a you know a child happens to need support on a day when that provider is not there, right? And there may not be a backup plan in place. Mm-hmm. So all those things that that you would think would be um, would be part of good planning don't necessarily happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I think that larger um, professional development issues are huge, which is why again we came back in 2017 with our with our big rewrite um, to the institutions of higher education and the professional development piece. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just you can't just address this when people are already in their teaching positions. It really comes down to what happens when people are learning to be teachers, when they're learning to be related service providers, when they're learning to be administrators. Right, right. And that's um, and that's where the higher ed institutions come in. And I think that's a big piece of this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know what one of the things I often say is that, you know, when I see restraint seclusion happening, often what I'm really seeing is a child that's not being appropriately accommodated. They're not having their needs met. And, and right. that's a manifestation of not getting their needs met. Um, and, you know, it's like uh, I'm a big believer in uh, the approach from uh, Dr. Ross Green, who, whose guiding philosophy is more or less that kids do well if they can. And if they're not doing well, then they're they're potentially lagging a skill or have an unsolved problem or, or other things that we need to help them with. Uh, but often we, we find the compliance model, uh, which is strictly trying to force compliance rather than listening to some of the communication that might be happening. So it's really it's really unfortunate. And I agree with you. I mean, just like kids do well if they can, I think teachers do well if they can. And, and we need to provide the, the tools for the teachers and the staff, you know, trauma-informed approaches and other approaches that can be used to help better meet the needs of a of, of wide diversity of kids. Yeah. Yeah, and I um, I just forgot what I was going to say. Um, it'll come to me. Um, okay. I did want to go back though, and and also when we were talking about um, about state laws, say and and the dangerousness piece, I did want to say that in Maryland, um, we do not permit the use of restraint or seclusion for property damage, which some other states do, and I think it's an important point to make. So. When we're looking at imminent serious physical harm, um, destruction of, of a classroom, destruction of the child's, the things on the child's desk are not grounds for using restraint or seclusion. And of course, we do see it sometimes used um, inappropriately, but, mm-hmm. um, but there are other states that do permit Mm-hmm. Restraint or seclusion for property okay. damage. Um, Pam, before we get to the next question, yeah. I want to. Um, we have a question here from one of our um, one of our viewers that I wanted to bring up here, and uh, I'll read this through. But if there are no state laws, uh, which is the case here in Ohio regarding restraint and seclusion, mm-hmm. can a parent still refuse to give consent to allowing it to be on a BIP slash IEP? Uh, school refuses to remove it from the document. I have been clear that I absolutely do not consent to the use of restraint and seclusion uh, and have offered alternatives. Uh, I'm trying to change school culture. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm hopeful there is some way I can protect my son. So this is where um, our 2017 legislation was very, very helpful and where um, you may want to think about doing something similar. If 
the team, the IEP team is recommending something that you disagree with. So if they're recommending putting restraint or seclusion on the IEP and you don't want to consent to that, you don't really have um, you don't really have have recourse unless you choose to go to a due process hearing or or another dispute resolution um, option. You can try to mediate. You can file a complaint. But you you the only way to try to stop that is a due process hearing. What our bill did in 2017 is to flip the burden so that. What we did, we, we did a, a bill that gave parents the ability to refuse to consent to moving their child off the diploma path, moving their child to um, the alternate assessment path, to a non-credit bearing course of study, and, the, and to, to putting restraint or seclusion on an IEP. So if an IEP team wants to do any of those things, it can make that recommendation. But if the parent refuses, what happens is then the school system can choose to challenge that decision by asking for due process, but the school system would bear the burden. So it flips the burden of proof to the school system on those four issues. But if you don't have a similar provision, then it's it, the burden is on you, and the burden would be on you to show why restraint or seclusion are inappropriate. Even with our bill, though, if if there is an emergency situation that meets that that, as Guy said, life or death standard, um, restraint or seclusion can be used, but the IEP team will have to meet to um, review the use of restraint or seclusion and to review the behavior plan if there is one. And um, and it just means anytime they use restraint or seclusion, if the parent has not been, has not consented, there will have to be a meeting. And I remembered what I wanted to say, which is that in Maryland, our restraint seclusion laws apply to children without disabilities as well as to children with disabilities. So um, we wanted to make sure to cover all students, although we know that restraint and seclusion are used extremely disproportionately with students with disabilities. We also wanted to cover those students who maybe have not yet been identified, but may need special education, as well as any, any students without disabilities who also may be subjected to restraint and seclusion. So I hope that answers your question. I mean, you, you, you can challenge um, the use if you, have, if you have a reason to. And we always, from the beginning in the 2002 legislation, had provisions that required um, for kids with disabilities required the IEP team to look at, at contraindications for the use of restraint or seclusion. So even if they wanted to put it on the IEP, they had to look at whether there were medical, psychosocial, psychological um, reasons against the use of restraint or seclusion. Um, so I, I don't know if you have anything, um, any, any kind of guidelines, but those, that, that would be a starting place um, if, you're, if you're looking at trying to get any kind of policy. Okay, great. Uh, Pam, you want to take the next question? Yes, it's really abundantly clear that, you know, from state to state, the laws and regulations sort of vary, you know, and so children may have more protections in some other states and less than another state. 
So based on your knowledge of the laws across the country, which states have the strongest regulations related to restraint and seclusion? You know, that's a question I, I don't really want to answer the way that you asked it. And the reason I don't is that I think that, um, I think that when you look at, at the state laws, um, every law's got its strengths and it's got its drawbacks. And what I, the way I would answer this is to say that, um, Jessica Butler has written um, and and continually updates a report called How Safe is the Schoolhouse that does an analysis of of all the state laws and regulations and policies. And she updated it fairly recently. And she looks at, you know, all the the states and um, and, and applies criteria to say, oh, this is a a meaningful uh, state law. This is a weak state law. because you can look at you can look at a law and say, "Oh, this looks pretty strong," but then realize, "Oh, it it allows restraint for property damage," or "Oh, this looks pretty good, but oh, you know, it allows prone restraint." I mean, there there are just like pieces that make it. I don't really want to render that judgment and say, "Oh, this is a really strong state law." What I can say is that at this point, forty-two states have, and DC, Washington D.C. have something but it ranges from weak to, to meaningful that um, according to Jessica's report, um, 22 states require that there be an emergency situation um, in order to trigger the use of an uh, um, emergency situation with physical danger to trigger the use of, um, of restraint. 26 states have that requirement for kids with disabilities. Um, there are 31 states that, that have a provision that would um, prohibit any kind of restraint that impairs breathing. Um, 35 states um, prohibit that for, for kids with disabilities. So it gives you a, a little bit of a sense um, when you look at, at the criteria. You know, Guy said that Maryland is, is pretty strong. You know, we do have those provisions for restraint and for seclusion. And while we don't completely prohibit the use of restraint or seclusion on an IEP, they cannot be put on an IEP unless they've been used in an emergency situation. And then the team can meet to discuss, but then of course we have the parent, the parent consent bill or refusal bill. So I think we tick off a lot of the criteria that Jess has put in her report, but you know, could it be stronger? Yeah, it could be. And, um, you know, and we will keep coming back and, and we will keep trying to make it stronger. It could be stronger because we could prohibit the use of the seclusion, which, right, right. you know, some of us would like to do. So, Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's always room to do more and it makes me reluctant to, to say that there, you know, there are states to say which states. And I think if you talk to people from those state, you know, from particular states, everybody's going to find the things that they wish were stronger. Right. And, and as we said before, I mean, you know, even looking at, at Maryland, having followed a lot of the federal guidance that was out there, I mean, you know, that to me is a, uh, one measure to look at. You know, a lot of states haven't embraced much of that guidance at all, but uh, Maryland did, but still we have a problem. So, you know, the the, the reg- regulations certainly are important, but in and of themselves are not the entire solution. Um, so it is difficult. 
Um, so moving on kind of in a similar vein, um, you know, so there's currently no federal legislation uh, regarding the use of restraint seclusion in schools across the nation. And I want to ask you if you believe we should have federal legislation and if so, why and what would you recommend to be included as kind of a, a minimal starting point? So I do think that federal legislation could be very helpful because there are some states that have nothing. And, um, and I think that puts kids in, in those states in a, in a really vulnerable position. What, um, you know, coming from a state that has a, a reasonably strong, pretty strong law, um, I, I, I feel like um, if we were going to have a federal law, it's got to be at least as strong as what we have in Maryland. Um, I don't want a federal law that's going to weaken the protections that we have fought so hard to get for, for kids in Maryland. So, um, you know, some years ago when the, there have been efforts over a number of years at this point to get federal legislation, and uh, we had quite a debate within uh, within the, the PNA network about about the provision that uh, would have have addressed allowing restraint or seclusion on an IEP. And at that point, we felt like we had a we had a good track record about what happens when you when you will allow it on an IEP, and we felt pretty strongly that this was the this was the sword we were willing to fall on. And not everybody in the network did, and it created a fair amount of dissension. So I think that there are, um, you know, I think that that there are a lot of issues that have to get hashed out. But my feeling is, if we're gonna, we we should. That if we're gonna have one, it's gotta be it's gotta be strong. And I think it has to address um, it has to address the dangers of seclusion. It has to address the dangers of prone restraint and and not permit that. It has to have a high standard for for when restraint could be permitted. It's got to address training. Um, you know, there are a lot of the things that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And, and really, I know that you were going to raise the American Bar Association resolution, but there are um, the provisions that were in the in the resolution are the things that we would want to see in federal law. Okay, okay, and we'll we'll get to that hopefully in a minute here. Uh, Pam, you want to go ahead and take the next question? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about data collection. So the Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, has been collecting data on restraint and seclusion since two thousand nine. So a little over 10 years here, we have, it's 11 years. However, there have been a lot of issues with this data collection effort. In fact, last year, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, or GAO, raised concerns to the Department of Education. Then, of course, the latest data available through OCR is from 2015. Is there anything we can do to sort of improve data reporting on the federal level? So the federal data is, of course, coming from the local school systems, and um, and a lot of states do not have uh, data collection requirements. Um, we put data collection requirements into the 2017 legislation, and um, it was really striking to see what we what we got. Yeah. Um, you know, we know from the, the civil rights data that lots of school systems don't submit 
numbers. Um, the numbers that we've seen are, are distressing, I mean, but we know it's a huge underestimate. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, if, there, if there's federal legislation, data collection has to be a, a piece of that. Um, but I think that that because it's the it's not even the state departments of education sending the information to um, to the office for civil rights, it's the local school systems sending it. Um, having having data collection requirements at the state level for the locals is is important, really important. And requiring the states to analyze the data and do something with it. Uh, or with them, with the data, is is really important. And that's where I look at what we did in 2017, and I know that we have room for, for improvement because I think we thought <laughs> that collecting the data, the state would actually do something with it, and they collected and just handed over to the legislature without any kind of analysis. So we, we will work on that issue. Um, yeah, yeah. You you think sometimes. I mean, OCR is the same way. Where it, it blows, it, yeah, it blows my mind that they've been collecting this data, but don't proactively do anything with this data. I mean, I come from a data background and think that you collect data; it needs to be time, it needs to be relevant, it needs to be actionable. And if you're collecting data and doing nothing with it, it's none of those things. Um, right. So it really is disappointing. Of course, you know. Uh, you mentioned the case with Maryland with getting the data and then not acting on it or or making recommendations. Uh, you know, that report is is part recommendations and, and not acting on those or responding to inquiries about acting on, on such things. So uh, it's really interesting. And I'm going to bring up a question from a uh, audience member that kind of relates to this. And I think it relates to the accountability police. I'll read his question, but I think I think we may want to think about this in, in a slightly different term. You know, he's asking, how do we get school board uh, staff fired that are doing prone restraints on kids? And I guess, you know, really that question boils down to this question of accountability. You know, and I, I had some of the same questions in my, my school district that you probably recall me asking you to the effect of when a school system isn't compliant with the law, what can you do? And and my journey down that road wasn't terribly promising. Um, but what can people do when there are, you know, violations um, of the laws that are in place? So there, there are a range of options. Um, if you have a strong State Department of Education, um, special education division, you can make a complaint, um, uh, an administrative complaint to the State Department of Ed. We have used our State Department of Ed to, um, to make restraint seclusion complaints and have have gotten strong letters of finding, and then um, and then our State Department of Education will make individual findings, and they will also make systemic findings. So we have been able to get training for staff and, and get compensatory services for for our clients, and get other relief that's both student based and and system based. Um, you can go to mediation, you can ask for a due process hearing, you can testify in front of your, your, your school board, you can use the media, you can, um, but, you know, I, I would say, um, just as a, as a cautionary note, that using the media is, um, can be a two-edged sword and to be very careful about how you, how you use it. Um, I think that, um, you know, Guy's situation is such a perfect example of how to 
effectively advocate with the local school board and, um, you know, and produced really strong results. So, and I'm sure you've talked about this before, but it's, it's just a, a remarkable example of kind of coming down from the ledge and, um, and actually engaging in conversations that have led to significant policy changes. So when, when that, when those violations are occurring, kind of standing back and thinking, well, why are these occurring? And what, what, what are the systemic barriers here? And what needs to change? And engaging in, you know, one, one route is the, is the, you know, go after them and go to due process. But the other is there's a reason why. And if it comes down to that training and the professional development and the support for school staff who are feeling desperate, Engaging in those conversations with with the administration, with the board, and and then trying to figure out is there a way to work together to get additional resources in place, because that's ultimately what it what it may come down to. And there may be ways that you actually can join forces, um, and and that's that's another way of framing this in a way that could be. Um, it, it could lead to change, not just for your child, but for other children as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in my personal situation, advocating for change, I first need to give credit where credit's due. You were the one talking me off the ledge a number of times. <laughs> um, you know, because it is, you know, I mean, you, you want, you want justice and you want what's right. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a, a longer road of figuring out, you know, how can we affect a change here? Uh, you know, very quickly, one of my, um, you know, one of the things that I went to was, like you mentioned earlier, what are some of the solutions? How do I answer that question of, if not restraining seclusion, then what? And, and developing an answer for that got me to the next question that I needed to answer. And, you know, again, trying to figure out how to engage with uh, the school system, in our case, led to a new policy, led to new training, uh, led to some positive change. Uh, but it was by no me- no means an easy feat. Um, but I think that there is an opportunity when we work together you know, um, I was able to to consult with you and others and and work together to impact that kind of change. But it, it can be really difficult and frustrating for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I, I would just say that, you know, that justice and vengeance are not the same thing. And, and I think that, um, and I just had this conversation with somebody earlier, that when, um, when you were able to put the emotions aside and, and then think about advocacy in a in a clear-headed way it's very it's very helpful and you know pete wright who's one of the icons of you know one of the the gurus of special education law um has a book called from emotions to advocacy and and goes around and does does that training and i think there is a lot to be said for this is a a really charged issue i mean the idea of of your child being Mm -hmm. subjected to restraint, having people lay their hands on your child, having your child placed in a seclusion room, having your child potentially be injured during that process, raises extraordinarily high emotions. And I think the reaction is, I wanna get those people. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna swear um, on this radio, being heard by 9,000 people, I, I will not do that. But you know, I want to get those people. I want to nail them. I want, you know, I want them to, to pay and, and, you know, blood. But I think it's, 
I think it's important to step back from that and to to think about, you know, maybe there is a, a, a reason to pursue a legal course of action and to go to due process and all of that um, and to think that through. But then to think about, is there a way to make to make longer lasting change that's not based on my desire for vengeance? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, great advice. Um, so when we look at the data of restraint seclusion, uh, we see, of course, it dis disproportionately happens to children with disabilities and black and brown children. Um, certainly there are, are valid concerns related to civil rights when you look at the data and you see 65% of the seclusion, 70% of the restraints happen to uh, children with disabilities um, and look at the data as it uh, pertains to black and brown children. So there's a lot of concerns here. And, and from time to time, certain legal arguments have come up in terms of restraint seclusion, the Fourth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment uh, talking about being seized without probable cause, Fourteenth uh, Amendment uh, talking about equal protection under the law. Uh, do, do you have any any uh, thoughts or opinion on uh, kind of other the civil rights issue, I guess, and, and then the, the constitutional um, issues? Yeah, so I don't know that. Um, I don't know that those have been particularly successful, but I, I also, I, I, I think that those are, are certainly arguments to make. Um, I think the facts, you know, the facts always matter when you're, when you're bringing litigation. Um, so you need the, you know, you want something other than a situation where a child was, you know, restrained for two minutes or in a room for five minutes. I mean, it's got to be a, it's got to be a serious situation. Um, if you're going to, if you're going to bring a case raised on that. And, and we all see cases that we wish, you know, were not the cases raising the constitutional violation. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, I, I, um, but, but the facts, you know, the facts matter. So, um, so I would just, you know, want to be careful about how to frame it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I've got a question here, um, from the audience, Pam, and then we'll, we'll get to you again. Um, this comes from Cheryl Ann Poe, uh, who says in Virginia, the Department of Education rejected adding the language requiring training to, uh, LEAs that reach, uh, that restrained or secluded black children more than any other group. What should parents of black and brown families uh, do to protect their children from being targeted? That's a, that's a good question. So I think, um, I think that um, looking, if you've got the numbers and you, you can establish that disproportionality um, a class complaint to the State Department of Education. Um, the State Department of Education may be helpful. Um, certainly an OCR complaint, um, the Office for Civil Rights, um, a complaint to OCR may be in order. Um, you may want to think about other, you know, other crafted bills in your state legislature. Um, I'm not sure that training is you I'm not sure that training and restraint and seclusion is gonna be that answer to to 
the disproportionality issue. I mean, we know that kids with disabilities are disproportionately disciplined, but within that group, we know that black and brown children, particularly black children, are are really disproportionately um, subjected to restraint and seclusion. And I think there are a whole host of reasons for that, that just providing training to staff in positive behavior supports is not gonna is not gonna fix that. So I think that um, I think that you know part of it is professional development and part of it is coming back to the curriculum and, and the way that um, coming back to the higher ed institutions and institutionalized racism and how we address that. Um, but in the immediate, how do you address it? I think uh, class complaints to OCR, to the State Department of Education, um, or a whole bunch of individual complaints. If you have a State Department of Ed that will not accept a, a class complaint, filing a whole host of individual complaints, and you can do that, you know, you can do that in all sorts of, of ways. Um, and I know in Virginia, um, there was a, a strategy at one point because of, I, I think it was shortened school days, um, there was a, a strategy to file a host of complaints um, and, it, and it got a lot of media attention. And I mean, there are all sorts of, of ways of, of thinking about how to, how to do this. Um, hey, Leslie, if I can jump in real quick, um, Cheryl clarified and what she was really talking about was not training on restraining seclusion, but actually requiring people that are restraining more more black and brown children to get training on racial bias. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, which is right. bias, yeah. Yeah, um, so if, if the state refused to put that in, I, you know, I, I think everybody needs training on racial bias. Um, and I, and I, I think I can, I can just come back and say that um, it is sometimes often really difficult to get something through the legislature the first try or to get a state department about to do something on the first try and um, coming back with, with a repeat, you know, with repeated efforts with um, evidence, evidence is really helpful. Um, so the more documentation you have of what the problem is um, and why what you're proposing will will address that problem, I think the better. And pulling in, and the other thing is um, working in coalitions. So if you if you are a disability advocate, but you're talking, but you're talking about racial bias, pull the NAACP in. Pull you know pull other organizations in that may not be your traditional folks that you work with on disability, but you know. We've we have our parts of a number of coalitions and they're broad based. And some of the folks are, um, you know, on, on school funding issues, we're, we're sitting at the table with teachers unions and we're not usually part of coalitions with them. But um, we work with the NAACP on school discipline issues, on other issues. Um, I, I think there are, you know, it's looking really broadly and, and figuring out who your allies are and and not trying to do this by yourself. So that would be part of my, my advice. Yeah. And of course I know Cheryl and she's an amazing 
uh, advocate down in in uh, Virginia and uh, has lo- logged many se- several um, very successful complaints. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think the message is we we've just got to keep pushing and we got to keep getting getting our data and and you know if, if what comes through with round one doesn't work for us, continuing to push on for more. Yeah, and it's you know what I said, and you know as guys said at the beginning, I've been working on these issues since two thousand two, probably longer than a lot of you listening have been alive. And um, there's always more work to do, and um, and a lot of this this work is like whack a mole. You think you've solved something, and then it and then that one pops up somewhere else, or the same problem that you thought you resolved pops up again. So it's it's tough work, and. Um, and that's why I'm finding that being in coalitions really helps. Um, and, you know, having other people to talk to really helps and pulling new people in really helps. Um, but it's it's ongoing work. Mm-hmm. It's hard work. But I think, you know, it's, it's just work that we have to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Pamela, you want to take the next question? Yeah, I do want to say too, real quick, is that um, the disproportionality on black and brown children, those children, some of them, they aren't, they haven't even been diagnosed with a disability too. So it's, it's very interesting to see that it's just a lot of it really is based on race and color, the disproportionality. So um, you were involved in efforts to have restraint seclusion data reported at the state level in Maryland. Can you tell us more about your experience with that and uh, sort of why it's important to get uh, data at the state level? Sure, if you don't have numbers, if you don't have the data, you have no idea what's happening. You don't know. you know, you, you, we only we only know from when people are calling us what what kind of you know that people are being restrained and, and placed in seclusion. So, putting the data requirements into the 2017 legislation was really helpful because the following year we we got access to this report, and then and then last year we got access to to the second report. And we could see what the school districts, and we have 24 districts in Maryland, um, what they were reporting in terms of of, um, restraint, in terms of seclusion. But we had also asked for data to be disaggregated by age, by disability, by placement, um, by race, by uh, disability. And what has become very clear um, are a couple of things. One, that there is an extraordinarily high rate of restraint and seclusion in particular jurisdictions in Maryland. So one of the things that you learn from doing this is that it's not necessarily a statewide problem. There are particular jurisdictions, which really helps if you're trying to focus your efforts, because you can focus your efforts then. And the second is that the vast majority of children who are being subjected to restraint and seclusion are elementary school children, primarily with autism or emotional disabilities. And so while there are students of all ages, the numbers for for elementary school children are really, really high. So it helps us target, um, it helps us target our efforts it helps us target locations. It helps us understand a little bit better um, the 
who is being restrained, who's being placed in, in seclusion. It helps us see that some of the districts with really high restraint rates have are reporting low seclusion rates, and some of the, the districts with high seclusion rates seem to have low restraint numbers. Some have high both, um, but we also have the demographic information. And it's it's been really interesting to see that, but it's also been interesting to see that despite how strong our law is, and despite the standard of imminent serious physical harm, the numbers have been very, very high, which raises that question that comes back to what you asked me, Guy, you know, why? You know, we have a strong law. Why are our numbers so high? And I think it comes back to that issue of, of the higher ed institutions and, and curriculum and professional development and the support that, that school staff need in order to meet the academic and the behavior needs of, of students. And that's a key part of what needs to be addressed in legislation and it needs to be addressed in, in policy. Um, because without that, we're not going to really make a dent in this. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I think culture, too, is a, a big part of this. And I think that explains some of the discrepancy from county to county as you look across our data set. And you can see that, you know, for instance, there are uh, counties in our state that don't use seclusion. Um, so they've made that as a decision. That's a stronger bar or a higher bar than the state requires. Um, and they have a culture that, you know, and I talked to a number of these different uh, counties uh, their culture is different. I think when, when, you know, obviously what people are learning in higher ed is really important, but when new t a new teacher comes into a school system and they're taught these are the tools in our toolboxes, what we do when we have these issues, those things just continue to to happen. And I, and I think that that cultural part is, is really important in schools. I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. And I think there's another there's another piece to the explanation, and that is that there is um, a lack of accountability. Mm -hmm. um, so while we have um, while we have some accountability within our special education division, the regulations that we have um, in the policies come from the general ed division at our state department of education, and there is a um, there's a, a divide between those two divisions. And there is no, I mean, in the special ed world, there is there is a, a monitoring process. There's an, some accountability under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. In the general ed world, there is nothing. And so while the data get reported every year, there's no there's just no accountability. There's right. no analysis. Nothing happens. And that's something that we want to address as we we come back to legislation. Absolutely. Um, I also sort of wonder, too, if like when you when we're talking in terms of data and we see that certain counties have more than others or less than others, those ones that have less. It, I know it's not necessarily completely indicative, but could it possibly be that they do have best practices that are alternatives to restraint seclusion, right? Can can we not go and see, hey, you guys reported zero. Why why is that? Is it because you guys 
have found some magical cure for this or you know what i mean like what's what's going on can we come and shadow you can this other school that has like the highest in the in the state can they come and shadow the the lowest in the state so to speak yeah so that's a great question and we actually had um in the in the bill that we we had introduced in 2000 for the 2000 Uh oh, it uh, looks like Leslie froze on us. Pam, are you still there? I am still okay. here. Okay, I'm okay. Still here. <laughs> right. It looks like Leslie's frozen on us for a second. So hopefully she'll become unfrozen. You know, we had this uh, conversation when we were uh, prepping for the show and Leslie said, you know, my, my cable company is not always the best and uh, I could have a problem. And it looks like looks like we've had an issue. So hopefully Okay, I think I'm back. I'm sorry. Okay, you are back. Okay. I, I think I, my internet went out momentarily. Okay. Um, so thank you. Um, so um, so that's a, in our in our recent legislation that that was uh, aborted by by the pandemic and the and the very abrupt end of our legislative session. We did try to uh, address that fact that we wanted the state Department of Ed to analyze the the districts that had really high numbers, but we also wanted them to look at districts with really low numbers, like the lowest numbers, because there could be two explanations for that. One is that they're not using restraint and seclusion um, and they are using best practices. The other is that they're not reporting accurate right. data. Right. And so we want that look behind, right? It could be it could be either. So we, um, we, we want the state to look at both because both of those the really high numbers are, are potentially a problem and the really low numbers could be a problem, but we don't know until you look behind. So we, we work that in and there were some, um, there was some opposition to, to that from certain corners. So we, I wonder why another discussion. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so. All right. Um, so one, one of the things speaking about, um, underreporting or not reporting. Uh, from my experience, sometimes uh, parents aren't even aware that their kids are being restrained or secluded. And, you know, talking to people from across the, the, the country, I've heard all sorts of things. And in fact, thinking back to my own personal experience, uh, the first time my son was um, secluded, it was never reported, at least that I'm aware of. And I asked for, I, I did a FERPA record request at some point. It was never, it was never um, recorded in any way. So if a parent suspects their child is being restrained and or secluded at school, what would you what would your recommendation be for them? I would say if there is um, if you have legislation in your state that requires documentation, um, certainly um, you should be getting it. And if you're not, then that would that could be a, the subject of a complaint to your an administrative complaint to your state department of education. If you don't have legislation that requires documentation, then you can use the IEP process. Um, you know, often, um, just in, in general, um, I uh, have, for clients, we will add to the Supplementary Aids and Services Programmatic Modifications and Supports page, homeschool communication. So if you were in a, if you were in a state that does not have requirements for notifying you if your child has been restrained or secluded, you could put that on, you could meet with the IEP team and add parent school communication as a, as a supplementary service, specifically the use of restraint, seclusion, you know, and anything else that you want to know about child and just get that on the IEP that way. So they have to notify you. So I think that's, that's one way around it. 
if you don't have um, if you don't have a requirement. Okay. And speaking about parental notification, um, you know, what's the requirement here in Maryland and, and what kind of things do you think should be required in terms of parental notification? So, um, as I said before, if, um, if parents have refused to consent, then any time restraint is used in, or, or seclusion um, in an emergency, which is the only situation in which it can be used, um, parents have to be notified uh, within 24 hours, I believe our regulations say, um, and, and there has to be an IEP meeting scheduled. If um, Otherwise, I mean, they, they have to be notified and the notice has to include, the, the documentation has to include the what was happening before the restraint was used, the, the interventions that were used, the less restrictive interventions, and um, who was involved and who, who was um, present when the restraint was used. And, and there's a whole list of things in the regulations, um, how long the restraint was, who, or the seclusion, who um, observed them, if the child went to the nurse afterwards, if there were any injuries to staff, if there were any injuries to the student. There's a fair amount of documentation required. And, um, you know, schools fill it out to varying degrees. I've seen very, very detailed reports, and I've seen minimal reports that you, you know, you just have no idea what the trigger was for the behavior that then led to the restraint. And ideally, what we want to know is is not the behavior itself, but what was it that triggered the behavior? Right. Was it that, you know, I asked Guy to read something out loud and then he got upset and then, you know, something happened as opposed to just Guy got upset and, you know, I restrained mm-hmm. him. So mm-hmm. it's that what, what was the what was the antecedent to the to the behavior? Um, the antecedent activity that then led to to the behavior, and sometimes we see that, and some, and, and often we don't. Yeah, you know, I'm surprised in looking at at various reports that, uh, for lack of a better way to put this, sometimes they're they're almost more honest uh, than you can imagine. Meaning that uh, if people were re- really truly aware of the law, they probably wouldn't be writing the report they were writing because it shows that clearly that the behavior or the situation didn't merit the use of, of restraint or seclusion. And I know in Illinois, there was pushback um, when they wanted to pass the ban on prone restraint and they wanted to add reporting. And some of the pushback was, well, this, this reporting, it just would be too much of a burden on staff. And of course, my reaction is that we want it to be a burden. We want people to exactly. really think twice about using these interventions. But it's interesting in different parts of the country to see how this has kind of played out. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, but you, you do want it to be a burden. You want Absolutely. people to be thinking before That's right. they engage in this That's potentially right. life-threatening right. Life-threatening. Uh, That's right. intervention. Right. Yep. All right. Pamela, you want to take the next one? Yeah, I think it's very, we have to really stress how important it is too in the documentation that we, yeah, you're right. We just don't want to see, okay, the behavior, the child was running. We want to see why that happened because just to be presented with that doesn't do you or quite frankly, the child any good. It doesn't help solve it or prevent it. Just saying child was running. So, I mean, I like like we mentioned at the outset. I I've run for school board. I've tried to be involved with various groups in the communities, and I've talked to lots of parents who they do petition the school board or their IEP team or all these people trying to sort of 
change things or advocate for their child. So how can parents, attorneys, advocates, you know, teachers, everybody sort of work together to influence change in their states, especially when it seems so insurmountable at times? Yeah, I, I don't think it's insurmountable. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've done it. Other states have done it. I think, it, you know, again, I think working in, in coalition is important. But I also think that taking it in pieces is, is helpful and it makes it less insurmountable. You know, if, if, you, if you set sub goals um, and you don't, you don't um, think I'm going to just get seclusion banned and I'm going to, you know, sort of do it all in, in one fell swoop, that feels insurmountable. But I think if you if you take it in pieces and maybe you focus on the on the documentation issue if that's a huge issue, or you focus on the the high use of restraint or seclusion with black and brown kids and, and look at the disproportionality, or you focus on the training piece. Um, you know, or if you if you do that whole big thing, and then you figure out where's the opposition. You know, what are the pieces that are the sticking pieces, and you get the other stuff passed. Then you know what you need to come back and 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 work on um, the next time around. But I think it, if you if you come into this thinking, it's a multi year process, and also that it's a a multi strategy process. So. Legislation may be a piece of it, and the legal remedies may be another piece of it, and community activism may be a third piece of it. Administrative strategies with the local school board might be yet another piece, and media may be um, another piece of it. And that part of this is figuring out which strategies you use when. And when you're working together with other folks, you know, the, the work can get divided, um, but you also can coordinate those strategies. And I think that's, that makes it manageable. It makes it effective. Um, you know, I know from, from doing that 28 year litigation in Baltimore City, you, 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 you need multiple strategies and um, to, to be effective. You know, we needed community folks and we needed other other things in addition to just being in court. Um, and, and I think that's the, that's the effective way to make change. Okay, great. Um, and, and, you know, um, having, you know, I, I remember one of the first conversations I had with you um, and, and I'm still very eager to see a lot of change happen, but at the same time, you're, you're right about the kind of the multiple strategies. And, you know, I, I think also, you know, being mindful that, that any victory is an improvement. I mean, you know, the, 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 the victory we had in our local school district, uh, although, you know, that, that doesn't do enough. Uh, the fact is that there are kids that will hopefully not be restrained and or secluded because of that change. And, uh, you know, it is tough. It is tough to be patient because uh, there's a lot to be done. And, and especially when we're talking about something that, you know, traumatizes kids, that, that causes significant injuries, uh, that has led to a number of deaths. So it, it really is tough sometimes, but you know, you're, you're right. It's working together and figuring it, out how we can do it. It is. But you know, if you, um, if you plow in like a bull in a China shop and alienate everybody, then you don't help any children. 
right? You're not going to make change for any children. But if you come in with a strategy and you're able to make some change and then keep the door open and, you know, and, and you're using multiple strategies then you are, you are making change for kids as you go. You can't change it for every, I mean, you know, I, I've learned from all my years representing, um, representing kids that there are always more kids. I can't fix everything for every child. Um, and I, and what I love about my job is that I can represent individual children and I can also do systemic work because if I only represent individual children, I, I love making change for those kids. I love sitting in IEP meetings and making change for those individual kids, but there's an endless number of individual kids and I can't help them all. The systemic change takes time and, and I don't only want to do that because then all those individual kids, like I can't, I can't help them in the way that I want. But when I do both of those things, then I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing something for, for individual kids that I I can do, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm also trying to make that, that bigger change. So for me, that combination of strategies has been a really satisfying way to spend my career. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a, it, it is a way to do, it's a way to do something um, while I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make that bigger change. But it's, it's, it's on, as I said earlier, it's ongoing work, right? It's never done. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure that knowing that you can't possibly retire until these changes are made, I mean, that's got to be uh, ample motivation, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, you, no, no, you can't retire, Leslie. So, you know, there's a there's there's a, a saying um, in uh, an old rabbinic saying um, that you know we're not uh, we we can't we can't uh, do make the change ourselves completely, but we're, but we're not free to desist from, from starting. Right. Um, it's, it's not up to us to, to fix everything, but we can't, we can't desist from, from the beginning. So we all play this role, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to remind folks that we have uh, probably about a little under 15 minutes left. And if you have any questions, feel, please feel free to put them in the chat. It's a really uh, fantastic opportunity to, um, uh, to ask any questions you might have. Oh, and, and, and just to let you know, uh, Beth just put a great comment in the chat. Uh, Beth uh, is here with me at the Alliance, and she said, if you retire, we'll recruit you for the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. <laughs> so uh, I'll let you know that Beth retired from her job, and, and we've been really trying to keep her busy. So, you know, I mean, you know, th- there are other pathways. So <laughs> we, we can okay. recruit you here. Not going anywhere Multiple for a while. strategies, that's right? right? That's right. Yeah. Multiple not, strategies. Not going that's anywhere right. for a little while. Like, All right. Still All right. here. So um, again, if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. Uh, Pam, do you want to take the question about the American Bar Association piece? I would love to take that question. I am so excited for it. So, I mean, recently the American Bar Association introduced Resolution 103, and that urges governmental bodies to adopt and enforce legislation and educational policies that prohibit school personnel from using seclusion and mechanical or chemical restraints on students in preschool through 12th grade. I know you were so involved in this work. I just want you to tell us more about this and sort of the importance of this uh, resolution. 
Sure. I am so excited about this, this resolution. Um, we were, uh, we were approached, I was approached by the, um, American Bar Association, um, their committee on, um, their civil rights and their disability committee to, um, to draft this resolution and the briefing paper that, that went with it. Um, maybe, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago. And over the course of the summer, um, worked on this resolution and thought, well, you know, we have a pretty strong law in Maryland. So I, I kind of based the, the resolution on, um, on that and on, um, COPA, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, you know, what we have, what, what COPA's position statement is about restraint and seclusion. So I kind of took what we, we all want, which is a ban on seclusion and, um, and really tight, restri- tight restrictions on, on restraint and um, a ban on prone restraint and the professional development pieces and put those in the resolution and then wrote the, the briefing paper to support that. And, um, and then it moved through the whole editing process, um, but it, it came out you know, with, with these strong provisions. And then, um, uh, and then I got the chance to speak in support of the resolution at the Bar Association's annual meeting, um, which was in August. Uh, yes, August. Um, and they would have flown me to Chicago if it were not in the middle of the pandemic and I would have had floor privileges. So, so I got virtual floor privileges. And, um, and got to speak for all of two minutes in support of the resolution. Um, and it passed by an overwhelming vote of something like 389 to 19. So what's the significance of it? The significance is that the American Bar Association is a, is a mainstream legal organization. Um, and it has now taken a position in support of these these provisions that we are really strong and um and that we would we would like to see in federal law and and the aba is now standing behind this so it has the same kind of policy ramifications that you know policy resolutions by the academy of pediatrics or the american medical association or the american psychological association you know they all adopt resolutions um this is this is an aba resolution and i think we can cite to it we can say look the american bar association is is supporting a ban on seclusion um and a ban on prone restraint so for people in states that don't have legislation and don't have regulations i think you can use this um, and, um, for people who are trying to make their laws stronger, it's a policy statement that, that you can use. And it's not, you know, it's not a radical organization with an off the wall, you know, off the wall, radical agenda. Um, this is, you know, this is a mainstream organization that's now come out with a position statement that is, is very strong. And I, and I'm very excited about it. And I know the ABA has, has, members who are, I'm sure, school system attorneys or school system insurance folks. And, and so I, I think this was, this was a really, um, it was a really exciting moment. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. 
And it was very exciting to have been able to be part of it. That's great. That's absolutely great. Uh, and, and great advice too, um, in terms of, you know, sharing this and, and looking at it, if you're in a state that doesn't have strong laws, um, we, we brought it up here on the screen for people to look at as well, but uh, we can put the link in the uh, chat. I uh, did have a another question kind of in the federal vein that came from another uh, viewer here uh, that says it appears that perhaps OCR is not as effective as we may want to believe they should be as the main federal oversight for these matters. Why? Mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, why? Or, 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 um, or, or, or even even where is their oversight? You know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking, you know, uh, should should we be write, writing letters to the Government Accountability Office about the issues with OCR? If OCR is not providing us with timely, relevant uh, data, uh, is G, does GAO have a function there in providing oversight? Or the yeah, DOJ? So, so GAO is responsive to uh, to to Congress people, right? Congress people write and ask for for reports from GAO. So the the appropriate uh, mechanism might be to go to your to your local congressperson or senator and and raise those concerns, which then might result in a request for a report. Um, I'm not sure what to say in response to the question why, other than that the Secretary of the Department of Education, which is where the Office for Civil Rights is lodged, is Betsy DeVos. And I'm, I'm not sure what else to say about that publicly. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I thought there could be a period at the end of that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. I've got one final question here and uh, we'll see if anybody else has a question for us. Um, so, you know, given the current situation across the nation, you know, there, there's a lot of trauma currently going on, you know, where we've all been exposed to, uh, you know, the trauma related to this uh, pandemic with COVID, uh, to racial inequities in, uh, issues. There, there's a lot going on. And, and part of the concern, you know, parents having to be home and teaching, uh, one of the concerns that that I have is the impact of all this trauma and what it's how it's affecting kids and parents and teachers. And when school's back in session, everybody's going to be carrying some potential trauma back into the classroom. And one of the things I think we know from looking at things like the ACEs studies and other things is that you know this trauma can lead to stress-related behaviors, can lead to behaviors that might be challenging for the teachers and staff. So you know we're, we're going into a situation where things could actually escalate in terms of restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsions, all of these things. Is there anything that, that you see that we can do now uh, while many states are still not uh, doing face-to-face -face programming? Is there, is there anything that we can do now to get guidance to uh, the states to, to, try to, uh, to try to manage this before it becomes a, a big issue, which I'm afraid it could. And also, some, yeah. if I could add real quick to that is let's not forget like teacher and school personnel who may be dealing with their own right. trauma too yep. right like a lot of people losing loved ones a lot of people um i mean recently we got this email about uh some teachers having to have sort of forced this option of retire early or or just you know sort of resign for whatever reason they can't teach and be a parent and just a lot of situations as well i think you um you know you both raise really important um important issues. And I think that um, that one way that I would approach this, an answer to this is um, 
by suggesting that what people can do is look at their state and, and local school system recovery plans, the return to school plans, and look at how they address these issues. Do they include provisions about restorative justice? Do they include provisions about trauma-informed interventions? I know in Maryland, a couple of our districts do, and a lot don't say anything. What we don't want is for students to return to the classroom and have the teachers say, welcome back, and now open your book to page 42, right? We don't, We there has to be an acknowledgement of, of everything that's happened um, over this period of, of time, and that this is this is a period of this is going to be a period of adjustment, um, and that that teachers have suffered trauma, that students have suffered trauma, um, and that this process of returning to school is is a pretty fraught one for for many many reasons. Um, so if those if those return recovery plans don't contain those provisions, that's where advocacy at the local board level may be helpful to bring the need for the district to plan for that, um, where advocacy at the state level may be helpful or may not be, depending on what your state department of that is like. Um, but at this point, given the timing, probably local the local level um, advocacy and um, and making sure that that you're putting this on the table at, at board meetings um, and and doing that kind of advocacy because it's really critical that those strategies be in place. And I also wanted to make another point about restraint and seclusion. We, we talked about the disproportionate use of restraint and seclusion with kids with disabilities, with kids um, who are black and brown. But many of those children who are subjected to restraint and seclusion are also students who have suffered trauma. Um, we see lots of, of students who are in the foster care system, students who have just on the ACEs scale, or they, they um, have a number of, of traumatic um, factors that come into play. And so when they are subjected to restraint or seclusion, they are, they are re-traumatized. And, um, and so it's not a, it's not an intervention. And I, and I say this a lot, restraint and seclusion are not behavior interventions. They're, they're not, they're what people do when they don't know what else to do. They're, they're the sort of desperate last should be last resort, sometimes feel like first resort ways that, that school staff intervene, but they're not, they're not, helpful to students in any way. And sometimes school systems will portray them that way. Um, mm -hmm. And, it's, and, and um, people shouldn't get sucked into that. And I'm sure people listening to you don't, but yeah. it's not, they're not, they're not positive behavior interventions in any right, way. Right. Not, not educational, not therapeutic, um, you know, and, and as you bring up kind of the issue with trauma, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the thing that I've seen is that restraint and seclusion leads to more restraint and seclusion, because as you begin to do that, and as you traumatize a child, the, the brain of that child changes to, to be more apt to be in a hypervigilant mode with your threat detection system on, on high alert, uh, which makes it more likely that mm -hmm. kids will again engage in behaviors that may have may have been what led to troubles in the first place. So, you know, you're, you're actually, it's this trauma loop that you're putting kids into 
Um, and, you know, it's really important to, to, you know, to get out of that um, because, you know, these are kids that already have been traumatized. I've had some interesting conversations with folks recently about, you know, again, if we look at um, a lot of kids that, the, that are subjected to this, whether they be kids with uh, autism, you know, emotional, uh, you know, issues, um, I would I would even argue that if you you think about um, being a child with autism, uh, seeing the world differently, communicating a little differently, uh, there's some inherent trauma to the world that you live in. To you, um, you know, if if you're unable to communicate in a way that uh, a neurotypical person might, uh, you're living in a world that is frustrating and and traumatizing. So, you know, I think there's more in common there with with disability and trauma uh, than we may be maybe realizing at times. Um, but we've we've definitely got to do better um, because you know it, it's it's just this loop that is making things worse and worse and we've got to got to do better. Yeah, I agree. So we are just about reaching the end of our time here, uh, Pamela. I want to give you a chance to see if you had any final questions. Uh, you know, I often do these with Beth, and Beth always has about five final questions. Uh, but I wanted to see if you had any final questions before we uh, wrap up here. Yeah, just real quick, back to the ABA Resolution 103. You know, I, I remember reading that article and just being so overwhelmed and uh, with a lot of different emotions because it seems like it, it took so much work, right? And when in the article it said that the sort of resolutions like these that have been passed in the past have led to substantial changes in local regulations or state regulations or even federal uh, regulations. I just wonder, you know, when it will sort of trickle down, if you will, or sort of uh, reach the halls of Congress and, and things of that nature. As you said, it's the American Bar Association. So pretty much any lawyer who's licensed, I think it's supposed to be sort of a affiliated with that or, or, or license. I know there's like the state bar requirements, but it just seems like a pretty big deal, you know, and I'm just sort of wondering what are sort of the future implications? Well, I mean, the American Bar Association is a membership organization, as is the, the state bar. I mean, we have to be members of the bar, but the Bar Association is a membership organization. So people choose to, to join. Um, as I said before, I think it's something that people can use in their states. They can use it in their advocacy. It's a policy statement. And when I'm doing policy work, I'm, you know, depending on what the issue is. So, so um, you know, in the, in the school health services case, um, the, the Garrett F. School Nursing case, um, when I was writing the amicus brief for the Supreme Court um, on behalf of disability organizations, I was looking to policy statements from the, the medical association and the, the nursing associations about nursing services in schools. Like I was looking for policy statements. So I think these are, these are helpful. This is a helpful resolution for people who are trying to do legislation, who are trying to create policy change. You can look to this and say, oh, look, here's a statement from the ABA. And it may be helpful as people continue to work towards trying to get federal legislation that's come up every single session for, what, 10 years, um, to try to get federal legislation to know that now the American Bar Association is making this recommendation, um, you know, for, for federal, for state, for tribal, for local um, legislation. So I think it's usable as a, as a strong policy statement. And will it have effect? I think people who, who try to use it will have to report back to you. Hopefully it will. 
That's great. Thank you. Uh, so I have one final question and, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so, you know, we, we mentioned uh, every state having a, a PNA, uh, you know, protection and advocacy uh, organization. And, and I've actually talked to uh, families that have, have worked with various organizations in various states. Um, and of course, my frame of reference is, is working with you and, and you're so, uh, you know, knowledgeable on, on this subject and, and so much more. Um, do you do you um, work with any of your uh, peers in, in any of the other state uh, organizations or if someone's working with a PNA in their state, um, you know, do you ever provide support? Uh, you know, because sometimes if a parent has an issue, it may not be the same as the focus of the, the organization. So do you ever work with your colleagues and other PNAs? Yeah, we we uh, we have a lot of cross PNA contact. We have listservs. We have um, work groups on on all sorts of issues. Um, we were connected in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know I know folks all across the country, um, and we we are constantly in touch with each other. That's great. That's great. So someone could potentially say, hey, I saw this great uh, program and somebody from Disability Rights Maryland and, and they had these great things to say and they might be able to connect with you and and find out more about your experience. Absolutely. OK, great, great. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you for participating today. This has been a lot of fun, um, but, you know, obviously a very serious topic, but really enjoyed all your insight. And, you know, you are an extremely uh, knowledgeable and, and generous person here with your time. Uh, and I've really appreciated all the help that you've you provided to to me and to this movement for change. And uh, want to thank you for for coming on and spending some time with us today. And uh, would hope to to bring you back again in the future. And uh, I will mention that uh, you, you and I will be co-presenting at a conference uh, later this year, uh, the the Tash conference in December. Uh, so looking forward to that and um, looking forward to continuing to work with you. And thank you, Pam, also for helping to co-host today. This has been a great show. Thank you so much. Um, and likewise, I, I look forward to our, our um, presentation in December. It's been a pleasure to talk with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really um, a, a great experience. And I appreciate that you wanted me to come talk with you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to have you both go back into the waiting room and I have a couple announcements here to wrap up the show. So thank you. And thank you, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you. Leslie. Thank you. Okay. And thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, I did just want to share uh, again, we will be here um, again in two weeks and in two weeks, let me pull up what we have going on here. We've got a uh, great presentation. This one will actually be uh, recorded. So it won't be a live presentation. But we're going to be conducting an interview with Illinois State Senator Jonathan Carroll uh, discussing the use of restrained seclusion in Illinois. As you may recall, there were a series of stories about restrained seclusion in Illinois uh, over the past year. And uh, Representative Carroll is going to share uh, his work on the issue. And we're really excited about that. So we've got a lot of exciting things going on. And uh, continue to uh, please follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I want to thank the team for all the uh, work that they're doing to uh, help spread the word about what we're trying to do here with the Alliance. Uh, it's been great to get to meet so many people out there in the uh, community and all the help that we have by, by from all of our team members. So thank, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you again uh, in two weeks. And uh, thank you. Thank you.